0: Everybody and welcome back to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. My name is Danny
1: and I'm Giacomo.
0: And this is our 15th episode. So it's been a little while since we talked to you guys and I sincerely apologize about that. As you know, we had Plant Built at the beginning of June and that was a humongous event. And we had really big plans to interview lots of athletes and bring you some really cool stories, and that just didn't happen. I don't think we got a single
1: interview in.
0: We didn't get anything, and we barely even got sleep in. So sorry about that, guys. That doesn't mean we will not have interviews with these athletes, but it's just going to be distance interviews from here on out. And then as soon as we got home, we had a big family emergency, um, a family member of mine passed away, it was very, very sad, and I wasn't really in the mood to record anything for you guys, so I hope you forgive me for that. Along with that, and how crazy this last few weeks has been, we decided to not have a specific topic this week, but rather to do a Q&A episode, which people tend to really like those anyway because, you know, a lot of people listen to these because they want to have their questions answered, so I figured why not... Cut out the middleman for a week and just take some questions and answer them and you guys gave us quite a few questions
1: i mean i'm really looking forward to today usually it's you know we're kind of just talking about whatever we're in the mood to talk about and seeing the feedback on social media is nice but to actually have questions from everyone and be able to to go back and forth i'm i think this will be exciting
0: So do we have any big things coming up in the next couple weeks, Giacomo? I sure hope not. Yeah.
1: I can't take anymore. It's been crazy.
0: It has been pretty crazy, but we're getting back in the groove of things.
1: Wait a minute. Aren't we like competing in, I don't know. Oh. like four or five weeks or something like that yeah we
0: have another competition at the end of july in newburyport massachusetts so if anybody is nearby and wants to come out and check that out it's supposedly a pretty big show it's called the ocb yankee classic and we will be there
1: yeah we're we're getting even more conditioned for this show so I'd, i'd say we're we're keeping busy uh for better or worse
0: yeah i would say so as well Okay, so without further ado, let's jump into some of these questions, huh? Let's do it. There's no way we're going to get through all these. No way. So I apologize if you did send us your question and we don't get to it today. We will definitely answer all these questions throughout future episodes if we don't answer them today. Okay, our first question comes from C. Mirza 83 on Instagram. What's holding me back from transitioning full vegan is my two sons. I find myself sharing food and snacks like goldfish crackers and scrambled eggs. I know it's a silly excuse, but I still claim it. What are some good resources for raising many vegans so maybe all three of us can make the full transition? Thanks.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, I guess the first thing is, you know, figuring out what you really want for yourself. And it sounds like you, you know, you want to go vegan and, I think the best way to influence your family is, is leading by example, or anyone else for that matter. You know, they, they see mommy or daddy uh, doing their thing and eventually they start to ask questions. Of course, as they ask questions and as you guide your family, it's good to have resources like you mentioned. So some some friendly and helpful resources you could find on the internet. Uh, there's a website called vrg.org, vegetarian resource group. And if you hit the teen Family and kids tab on the left hand side. There's some good, good uh, reading over there. Let's see, what else? Raisingvegankids.com is uh, another great website for giving you information on how to raise your kids.
0: Yeah, and if you go on Facebook and just sort of search around, there's lots of different um, family groups for vegan parents trying to raise vegan children. One of them is called Raising a Vegan Child. And that's on Facebook. And it's just so, you know, you can go through it and see the questions other people are asking and how they're dealing with their, you know, maybe their kids don't like vegetables or they can't get them to eat the vegetables and how they're able to deal with it. Obviously, Giacomo and I don't have kids, so we don't, we're we're not super familiar with this particular problem. But one thing that I personally loved to do when I first decided that I was going to go vegan, but I didn't really know what to eat is I just sort of took field trips to the grocery stores and not necessarily going grocery shopping, but just going and poking around and seeing what's available to me and sort of figuring out stuff that looked interesting to me. And I bet kids would have a lot of fun doing that also because kids, you know, they they like to try new things. There's plenty of alternatives um, of foods that they already really love, like goldfish crackers. They make vegan goldfish crackers now, and they taste exactly the same as I remember them tasting as a kid. Scrambled eggs, scrambled tofu, you know, there's all sorts of like seitan bacon, and you know, teaching kids how to, kids will actually generally end up eating a wider variety of foods when they Are raised vegan. In my experience, just hanging out with kids who are vegan and hanging out with kids who are not vegan, the non vegan kids tend to eat the same foods over and over, and the vegan kids get like these huge variety of colorful fruits and vegetables. So, I mean, think about your kids also and what you want for them in the future. And, you know, kids learn how to like what they eat. When a kid is raised eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, they grow up to like fruits and vegetables. When they're raised eating, I don't know, less wholesome foods, that's what their palate is going to be accustomed to eventually. No, it
1: doesn't hurt to explain the ethical side and, you know, help them make bridge that connection that what they're eating on their on their plate Gently, is. Of Gently, of course.
0: Especially depending on the age of the kids.
1: There's a there's another website, we don't dot com, that can give you some guidelines on how to, you know, bridge that gap for you know, t- towards the ethical side and explain, you know, why why it makes sense to eat vegan. And
0: also I'd recommend checking out veganmuscleandfitness.com. That's Del- Derek Treesize and Marcella Torres. And they have a little boy named Miles and they have another one on the way, I believe. And they've raised him vegan and they they do a really good job of being vocal about how how they're doing it and how he responds. And they have a lot of blog articles about those sorts of challenges as well. Obviously they're both vegan. So That part's not hard for them, but how to raise kids can be challenging in a non-vegan world. So it's good to check that out.
1: Next question is from Yoga with OJ on Instagram. And the question is, generally, it's recommended to take in one gram of protein per pound. Is it the same for vegans since they get higher quality proteins from their diet?
0: So first, I want to say that it's only really recommended to get one gram of protein per pound for an active individual who's lifting weights um, or even just you know their body's taking a beating from pretty intense workouts because your body needs more protein to help you recover from these intense sessions for people who don't really work out or are pretty sedentary you can get away healthily with much less protein than that but i'll assume that we're talking about people who work out regularly or weight train regularly And one gram of protein per pound, that that sounds about right. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less, depending on the person and what works for them. But as far as vegans, I would say it's the same. I don't necessarily think that vegans get, quote, higher quality proteins from their diet than non-vegans. I think that they're just different. One is not necessarily better than the other in, in terms of protein quality. Um, Obviously there are other kinds of pros and cons to the proteins that we get, but as far as the protein quality, I would say they're just different more so than better or worse. So I would say that one gram of protein per pound is a really good starting place. If you are significantly overweight, then you want to think more about one gram per pound of lean body mass because that's what you're feeding the protein to, not necessarily like your body fat poundage. But no, I don't think vegans need less protein because their proteins are better. It's just a different kind of protein. And meat proteins or bean proteins, they're all going to get broken down into amino acids eventually anyway.
1: Well, you know, I I guess it's something that just came to mind for me is you have to be aware of how much or how little protein is in the food choices that you're— you're choosing. I think that's the problem is that some, some people think they're getting in more protein than they actually are.
0: I would agree with that. That
1: goes for like any food source. It's really important to know exactly what you're eating basically because you can say, oh, well, this is a protein-dense uh, animal-based food. This is a protein-dense vegan-based food. And one can have far more protein per calorie than, than the other in both ways. So it's really you really just got to know what you're eating basically and, and then you'll know exactly how much protein you should be getting in.
0: Cree Stahl asks what made you both go vegan and also what's your favorite prep meal. Hmm.
1: I went vegan back in 2004. I started getting into it around 2002 when I wanted to help a friend who fell ill to heart disease. I was already going to my co-op and eating, you know, unprocessed mostly whole foods. And I started reading uh, several books and saw that there were some clear health benefits to going vegan. And what helped me make the transition and go full circle uh, was a friend of mine that I met with in the community. And she still currently runs an animal rescue shelter. And she put me onto the ethical side of veganism. And, and once once that struck a chord with me, there was really no going back. So that, that was basic. That's my backstory, um, the long and short of it. And my favorite prep meal, I'm going to go with ice cream. I knew you were going to go with ice cream. <laughs> it's been what, 93 days in a row of ice cream? Yeah.
0: Ice Why don't cream. you elaborate on that so people don't think you're sitting around eating ice cream on prep for real?
1: Okay. Well, when when I say I'm eating ice cream and that's my favorite prep meal, I'm having a very, very small portion of ice cream and just a little bit every day goes a long way for me. It, basically. And, um, wink, wink, uh, ice cream is pretty good because you can get a nice size bowl of ice cream for, you get a lot of caloric bang for your buck out of it. Basically.
0: Um, I went vegan in late 2002, I believe maybe late 2003. I'm not sure. I went vegetarian when I was about eight years old after I saw a lobster, getting cooked, and I never wanted to eat meat again. But I still drank milk and had eggs and ate cheese and stuff. Actually, that I would say that made up the majority of my diet for the next nine years or so, which is probably how I became obese. <laughs> um, I ate a lot of junk food as a kid. Even though I was vegetarian, I ate a lot, lot, lot of junk food. When I was a junior in high school, I was doing a research paper, and I chose to do it on vegetarianism, Because that was something I was obviously passionate about. And while I was doing it, you know, the internet was much smaller than it is now. And I stumbled across a website that explained to me the connection between the dairy and egg industries and the actual meat industries that I was already boycotting by not eating meat. And it explained to me how, you know, these dairy cows, for example, are, you know, treated so, so poorly. And then as soon as they stopped producing enough milk to be profitable, they were then shipped off to the slaughterhouses to become the burgers that I was not eating. So just making that connection, I decided to go vegan overnight. It's not something that you can just unlearn. So starting the next day, I stopped eating dairy and eggs. And there were a couple slip-ups, not like I my will broke and I decided to eat a pizza or something. But there were a couple times where I was eating something and as I was eating it, I realized like it had a milk product in it or something like that. So it wasn't absolutely perfect and I definitely didn't know what to eat. I ate a lot of French fries. (laughs) I ate a lot of plain bagels. Jeez, what did I eat? Hummus, I ate so much hummus, which I still love hummus, so that's fine. Let's see, my favorite meal on prep. Jeez, I look forward to my high carb days, which I have one every four days and we'll use the term high carb really loosely here because we're pretty deep into prep and high carb is even high carb is still pretty pitiful and I look forward to baked potato slices at night on my high carb day and I put a little day of cheese on them and a little bit of ketchup and it's just my favorite thing in the entire world It is so filling Giacomo makes fun of me because I won't have anything but potatoes on my high carb day for every my carbs
1: single night
0: well it's not every single night just about it's every fourth night actually I love them okay also from Giacomo's Instagram page from the Josh D Garcia hey mate any suggestions on how to lose midsection body fat the natural vegan way and how long this should take approximately when workouts and diet are on point are helpful that's where me and my friends struggle the most
1: There is no way to spot train for fat loss. Your body is your body. Everyone's body is different, and you are going to gain and lose fat proportionally to the way that you are built. If for some reason that's, I mean, if that's where you're holding uh, body fat, which most men tend to hold body fat in their midsection and lose it there last, well, then it's just a matter of of improving your body composition. Getting leaner. And it takes time. And you don't necessarily want to get too lean too fast because it really helps to build muscle uh, and while you're uh, losing body fat because the muscle will burn even more of your body fat and will give you a better look. If you just continue to lean out, I mean, you might not necessarily like the end result. Yeah, you will have a smaller midsection, but your physique will look better if you take some time to build lean muscle. So, I mean, time frame... It's really tough to say. You're, you're saying that because it, it, it's, very, it's very much so up to the individual and there's so many variables. But I would say anywhere from six to nine months if you're just starting off. I would off,
0: say a pound a week. We have no idea how big or small this person is. True. But I would say aim to lose one to two pounds a week max. You do not want to be losing more than two pounds a week because then you can almost guarantee that you're losing muscle.
1: Yeah, At I was thinking point. more along the lines of of seeing real change from from point A to point B. It's six to nine months is a good period of time where you'll see.
0: As long as you're very consistent right. with working out and, you know, having your diet on point, like he said, then, yeah, I would say that you should be able to look in the mirror and see a pretty significant change in six to nine months.
1: All right, I I got to do this question. i <laughs> It's uh, this. This is a question from my Facebook from Pietro Capibara, also known as Peter Copeland. Danny, do you even lift?
0: I in fact do not even lift.
1: She, she really doesn't. I mean, I I personally think I do, but I know that no matter what, because even if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger as Domizetti would would tell you, you still don't lift. So basically, Peter, no, none of us lift.
0: Pietro is just mad because I now lift more than he does because I haven't seen his face in the gym in months.
1: Yeah, he's miring them gains.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, next.
1: (laughs) Uh, Quit messing up our podcast, Pietro. All right, the next question is from Christine Crumbly. Top five questions to ask a coach before hiring can be a mix between training experience and nutritional advice experience.
0: Ooh, that's a good question. I had a feeling you might hmm. like that one. I guess I've never thought of it in terms of top five questions. Well, I guess my my biggest question would be, well, I guess they'd be, you know, who are you certified through and how long have you been certified with them? Like, how long have you been doing this, basically? Um, I would ask about other clients that they worked with. So I would ask for references you know, it's good to hear about how other clients have felt about their experience with a coach, I think. Probably the most important question would be what their philosophy is with both training and nutrition. What is their philosophy? Is it 12-week tra- transformations that they really love to work with? Do they believe in working mostly on functional fitness and getting better at just daily motions? Are they interested in super clean eating? Is their philosophy flexible dieting? Like, sit down and have a conversation with this person and figure out who they are and what they're about. If they have a website or a blog or a YouTube channel or whatever, you know, check it out before you decide to sign up with somebody. I would ask them What I could expect as far as feedback, guidance, how much access I have to them. What can I expect in terms of results? And obviously this is going to largely depend on you and how much work you're willing to put into it. But if you ask a trainer a question about what you can expect for results and they say something to you that sounds like it's too good to be true it's probably too good to be true, and they're probably just telling you what you want to hear to get your money. So, you know, if they... <laughs> I, I'll say it again and again and again, the The truth behind fitness is that it's really not that extreme. So, it's not that uh, alluring. It's not that sexy to sell. So, <laughs> In looking for a good coach, that's kind of what you're going to want to find. I mean, definitely you want somebody who's passionate about it, but you don't want somebody who's like making all these really extreme elaborate claims because nine times out of ten, that's just not the way that it's going to be. To recap that, (laughs) um, I still think that's only four questions, but we can make it five. Um, So just to recap, I would ask them who they're certified through. And how long they've been doing this. I would ask if I could have any client references to talk to. To see how their experiences went. I would ask them what both their training and nutrition philosophies were. And really have a conversation with them to see what type of mindset they have about this. So I guess that's two questions right there. And then I would also ask them what I can expect in terms of results. And feedback and guidance. And While I was asking all these questions, I would be looking to see if this person seems like they're actually passionate or not about what they do. Because we've all worked jobs where we're just really not that into it and we're just doing it for a paycheck. And I totally get that. But when it comes to hiring a coach, that is not something that you want to settle for. All right, a question from Neela Daniels on Instagram. How do you ensure you're getting enough b 12
1: I supplement with B12, and that's how I make sure I'm getting enough in. It's just not something that I'm going to leave to chance. A lot of people think they can get away without supplementing. And whether you're an omnivore, carnivore, vegan, whatever it is, B12, most people, the likelihood of developing a B12 deficiency in this day and age is high. Very high. It, yeah, and it takes about five five year, to seven five years to seven years for your B12 levels to to be depleted. And once they are, I mean, you are shit out of luck. I mean, you can you, do
0: some real damage that is irreversible.
1: Correct brain brain function.
0: It's very very important, and I I find it interesting that so many people who are not vegan like to point out that well vegans don't get any B12. Vegans don't get any B12. You know. My beef has B12 in it. I hate to break it to you, but your cows were fed B12 fortified foods as well. So, you know, whether or not you think you're supplementing with B12, you're probably supplementing with B12. A lot of foods are fortified with vitamin B12 because there's not very much of it left in nature at this point. And like Giacomo said, I don't care if you're vegan or not vegan. I think that everybody should be supplementing with vitamin B12 because it is just not worth running the risk of having low vitamin B12. Unlike vitamins A, D, E, and K that are fat soluble that you can actually take so much of them that they have a toxic effect on you, B12 is a water-soluble vitamin. So even if you take a lot of it, anything that you don't need, you're just going to urinate out. So I mean, people say, well, that's, you know, taking stuff you don't need is taxing on your kidneys and your liver. And I mean, maybe like a smidgen, maybe it has like a small effect on your kidneys or your liver, just like eating or drinking anything or living in a city that has smog in it.
1: That's why you have a kidney and a liver. I mean, they're designed to filter things out. Otherwise, what would you have them for? But what
0: is the alternative? You have potentially low vitamin B12 and you have irreversible brain damage. Like to me, it, it's not even close. It's not even close at all. And a lot of purists want to say that you don't need to supplement with anything ever. And the, you know, these are the people who are going to end up having problems down the road. And And also a lot of the people who say that, who are vegan, I would like to point out, they say, well, I'm vegan and I got my vitamin B12 tested and it was fine. Well, how long have you been vegan? because you store vitamin B12 up to seven years. So if you have not been vegan for over seven years, that test is likely inaccurate as to what's going to happen down the road.
1: Now, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned the, you know, the purists sort of demonizing straight up uh, the supplementation of, of B12. It drives me crazy because they're going to wind up really, really hurting people.
0: Yep, it's pretty fucked up. Um, And I know that we run a vegan supplement shop so people could, you know, conceivably say, well, they're just saying that because that's how they make their money or whatever. But I will say a hundred times over that there are tons of supplements that we carry that no one needs. You don't need them. They can help you. They can be a tool to get you to the next level of whatever goal it is you're trying to reach. But when it comes to vitamin B12, and I would even say vitamin D, you should be taking them, period, no matter who you are.
1: Agreed. From Danny's Instagram, from at Victor Rafael Ramirez, many people break plateaus and reach new goals by committing to an IIFYM philosophy. Can you tell me what you know about this style of dieting and how to make it work best for you, as well as a few essential foundational foods in everyone's IIFYM diet?
0: So I love the IIFYM philosophy. Um, I don't necessarily know about using IIFYM or flexible dieting to break a plateau and reach new goals, unless you're coming from a place where you're just eating clean and not actually tracking anything. And also getting
1: tired of it, maybe getting tired of it and you're using it to break a plateau so they can stay Yeah. I mean, you can break
0: through a mental plateau with flexible dieting really easily, but as far as breaking through physical plateaus... IIFYM is not necessarily the answer for that. I would say tracking your food is more of a way to break through a plateau. Because if you haven't been tracking what you're eating, how can you possibly know what to change? Well, what do I know about this style of dieting and how to make it work best for you? Actually, I wrote a whole book on it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm sure I don't know everything and lots of things will change with time. But I think I under—I mean, I understand it pretty well. And the most important thing about IIFYM is finding what works for you and not abusing it. Don't abuse the IIFYM just because it's called if it fits your macros doesn't mean you should just eat junk all day.
1: What if I want to have 10 pops or tarts a day and nothing else?
0: See, if I wanted to have, I don't think i could get away with having three Pop-Tarts in a day right now because of where my calories are at, where my macros are. And, I would end up having to just eat protein shakes and protein shakes and Pop-Tarts. And I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to see that that's not very healthy. But, you know, eat predominantly whole, gently processed or unprocessed micronutrient-dense foods. And then if you feel like a cookie have a cookie and fit it in. If it's your mom's birthday, go over to her house and have a piece of cake and be able to fit it in and not feel like you just blew your diet. And now you're going to eat everything in sight because you already fucked up. So you might as well eat everything.
1: And it's not as rigid as doing that day in and day out. And that if you are eating predominantly whole foods every single day, then you're on track. But if you have like, you know, a week or something where you're not eating predominantly whole foods, well, you're getting off track. It's It's incorporating it into your lifestyle so that on the whole, you're headed down the right track.
0: Yeah, it's more about making your food fit your life rather than having to make your life fit your food schedule.
1: I mean, holidays, right? The holidays roll around. It's Christmas time, Thanksgiving, whatever. Are you going to eat predominantly whole foods for that week? Probably not. You're going to have mom's cooking, home style, comfort food, whatever. And that's okay. You're not falling off your your plan. It's fit right into your plan. Right. Yeah.
0: One of my favorite things about flexible dieting or IIFYM is that if you do hit a plateau, which you will, everybody hits plateaus. It happens all the time. At least you have data collected on yourself. You know exactly what you've been eating so you know what to change or you know where to make changes from. That's true. So if you hit a plateau, you can be like, well... Let's say you hit a muscle-gaining plateau. You're, trying, you're in a gaining phase, and you hit a plateau. You can. You know exactly what you've been eating, and you can very easily say, well, I'm going to add 30 grams of carbs. And from there, track that and see how that goes. So that's one way that I really like to use IIFYM. And I think that everybody, I think everybody with a goal should be tracking their food. I'm the queen of telling people to track their food. <laughs> um, a few essential foundational foods in everyone's IIFYM diet. Well, that's kind of the cool thing about it is that everybody's foundational foods are going to be different. Like, I have staple foods, and Giacomo has staple foods, and a lot of times they're completely different.
1: And they can change over time.
0: Yeah. I love potatoes. I use low-carb wraps. Broccoli, I've had broccoli every single day for over a year. Coffee, coffee is a foundational food for me. And as far as my protein sources, I use Eve's Canadian bacon. I use Upton's Satan bacon. I use Beyond Meat chicken strips. Um, I will use protein powder if I'm in a rush, but not often because I don't like protein powder that much. <laughs> Fruit. Strawberries. I love strawberries. I have strawberries all the time. Tofuti cream cheese has actually become one of the staple foods in our diet, which is kind of funny. I love it. But we love it. All right. The Vegan Zombie asks, how many hours per day do you work out? And when are we going to do another Vegan Zombie video?
1: As far as doing another Vegan Zombie video, that would be awesome. <laughs> We, we might be going out to Chicago and then driving out there for either Chicago Vegan Mania or Chicago Veggie Fest, wherever. You are, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. But if we do that, it would be really cool to to catch up and whatnot. And maybe this time around, I'll look a little less awkward on camera. But I doubt it. Oh man, that was the worst. I felt like I was the vegan zombie just standing there, all stiff and whatnot. Like, um anyhow yeah so I'd, I'd love for the opportunity to do that again and how many hours a week do we how work many hours a day a day that's a lot a little easier it really all depends anywhere from i'd say anywhere from two to three hours a day
0: yeah i would say giacomo works out a little bit longer than i do uh, he seems to take longer breaks than i do
1: i have a little more volume in my workout too i'd say
0: but mine's usually about two hours a day, two hours a day, five days a week. And then the other two days a week, I just do cardio. And that only takes me about a half an hour.
1: The thing of it for us is that when we're dieting down, it takes a little longer for us to get through our workouts because we have less energy. So we have <laughs> to take we're flipping rests. exhausted is what he means. Yeah. As opposed to when we're not dieting down and we're, we're bulking up, we we're well fed. And so we can power through our workouts a little easier. So that's why I say it depends. Questions from Danny's Instagram at Shammy Melly asks, how do you get a balance between overtraining and not training sufficiently?
0: That's a good question. And I think it's a really good question for people who are not working out consistently. Cause I see this a lot. People get this idea in their head. Like I'm going to get fit now and I'm going to hit the gym on Monday and they Go to the gym on Monday and they absolutely annihilate themselves and they do that a few days in a row and then they're so sore they can barely walk and then they're like, screw this, I am not. And then they don't go to the gym for, you know, another month until they decide they're going to get fit again. So the short answer to this, getting a balance between overtraining and not training enough, is to start with an amount that you can commit to and start small. You don't want to come rushing right out of the gate training five or six days a week if you've never trained before because you're going to not necessarily overtrain because it actually takes so 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 much to overtrain your body and that really only happens to pretty elite athletes i would say but in terms of you know overtraining like being so sore that you can't move for example i mean i'd more call that overreaching but still it's uncomfortable and you're probably not going to go back. So making sure that you increase the amount of training that you're doing slowly. If you start to feel like you have stalled at making strength gains in the gym or stalled at making progress with your measurements or anything like that, then maybe add another day or or even just add a few more sets to your workout. So, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't work out regularly... Can you commit to three days a week of going to the gym? If you can commit to three days a week, do three days a week and get used to that. Do that for a month. Do that for two months. And then when you're comfortable with that, you know, add more sets to your workout or add a fourth day of the week and change up your program. And eventually you can get to the point where, you know, like Giacomo and I just said, I work out seven, we both work out seven days a week right now, sometimes for up to three hours. That did not happen overnight. That didn't happen even in the first year. It's taken us years to get to this point where our bodies are accustomed to working out for a couple hours a day, every day. And it takes a lot to continue to progress. But make sure that you're periodizing your progression appropriately for the level that you're currently at there's no need to beat the shit out of yourself every single time you go to the gym just to make progress
1: Well, you want to maximize the amount of gains that you can get with the volume that you're doing too because remember once your body adapts to the volume you're giving it the only way for you to continue to see results will be to add volume and like danny said you don't need to overreach right away for that i'd say the first at least two years you know, you give your body consistent training and it will continue to grow. There's really no reason to beat the ever loving shit out of it because then you'll just have to do it that much harder. And, uh, and that'll be the only way that you can make gains. So take advantage, take advantage of the first couple of years without having to go nuts and the gains that you'll continue to receive.
0: I would say that one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make both with their training and with their diets, and this is across the board, is people make changes too quickly. They make changes to their, you know, if they don't see results in a couple weeks, they change up their whole training program. If they don't see results on the scale, they cut 300 calories from their diet and they just keep making changes too quickly. And that is one of the reasons why you never see consistent results. In my personal opinion is patience is the bottom line of all things fitness. you got to be patient and you have to have faith That doing things consistently over time will yield results. It has to. Life is Better Running asks, what are your five favorite protein sources and what do you eat for breakfast?
1: Five favorite protein sources. I do happen to like protein powder. I think it's versatile, it's convenient, portable, and you can do lots of stuff with it. Protein waffles, for example, is one of my favorite uh, breakfast items. So there's that. I mean, my favorite breakfast kind of changes, though. Somet- I really like bagels in the morning. Breakfast for me is a pre-workout meal, so it's it's a very carb-dense meal. And that's why bagels bagels are a fun, carby food for me. Uh, what else? A cereal. I like cereal in the morning. Love tofu scrambles, but I never have the time to make it. Okay, and other protein sources. Eve's Canadian bacon is a definite winner because the macros are, are kind of crazy. I mean, it's got more protein than most protein powders out there uh, as far as it's, it's how protein-dense it is. So I love working with that. I, I can fit it in during contest prep and, and have more play with my carbohydrates and fats. Three other protein sources. Let's see... I'm a big fan of tofu. I like I like uh, pan frying tofu and putting it in an English muffin with a little bit of Gimme lean sausage. I think it goes a long way, or just baking it. I'm I'm a big fan of of mock meats in general. I I think they you know I really enjoy them on my uh, on my plate. So anything from Eve's Canadian bacon to Upton's bacon seitan to the to the Beast burgers from Beyond Meat. Those those are generally my favorite things. Other than that, you know, tofu, protein powder, stuff like that.
0: My five favorite protein sources are pretty easy. Beyond Meat Chicken Strips, Upton's Bacon Seitan, Eve's Canadian Bacon, Gardein Chicken scalapinis, which I haven't had in a long time. and I just remembered how much I like them. And Tofurky Apple Sage Sausages. I really, really like those, but I don't have them very often. And for breakfast, I've been having... Eve's Canadian bacon, and I have this low-carb um, sort of a flatbread pita that I put, I toast it, and then I put tofuti cream cheese and a low-sugar jam on it. And that's what I've been having lately.
1: Next question came through via email. It has a lot of great questions, actually, all in one. So I'm going to look for some of my favorite ones over here, and we'll do our best to answer it. I listened to your most recent podcast about getting toned, and a few questions came up. By the way, thank you so much for clarifying the myth of losing the last 10 pounds. You're welcome. Anyway, my questions. You talk about eating more calories during the off-season to boost muscle growth. Does that include a higher percentage of calories that come from protein, or is it more calories in general?
0: Um, for the most part, this question came up from a few people Um, when we put out the call for questions, where people asked if protein changes on rest days or protein changes in the off season. Not much, actually. Um, Protein pretty much stays the same for me and for Giacomo. It goes up a little bit when you're cutting just because protein is more satiating. And it also helps you preserve your lean muscle while you're dieting down. But in general, protein stays like within 10 grams.
1: I am interested in doing a competition in the bikini division next spring. So right now my focus is to grow muscle. I love that. Yeah, (laughs) me too. (laughs) However, there's a concern of growing a bit too much since bikini athletes are on the lighter side of things compared to, say, figure and bodybuilders. Is growing too much muscle as a bikini competitor even an issue? Or should I jump into muscle building full force?
0: I would say to jump into muscle building full force. And here's why. First, if it's your first competition, chances are there you cannot put on too much muscle in your first year for even a bikini division. In As a natural athlete and a woman, you're only going to be able to put on maybe four pounds of muscle in your first year. And then from there like two pounds of muscle every year afterwards so I would take say that it would take several years for you to be quote unquote too big for the bikini division I've also not really heard many people told in natural organizations that they're too big for bikini and I have seen some bikini competitors that have killer backs and shoulders do really well in bikini Samantha Shorky is actually a great example of this um Sam is about 5'7", I think. She's about, me and her are the same height, I think. Roughly. And she competes in bikini, and I compete in figure. Um, But she has great shoulders and great back, and that's really important in figure also. So a large part of it has to do with how you're posing. If Sam struck a figure pose, she could compete in figure. I don't think there would be even an issue with that. But because in bikini, you don't flex as hard, and you don't hold your body the same way, and you don't get as lean. So those are really the key factors there. Now, if you go to an NPC show or a non-tested show, there's a much sharper line in between the two divisions, in between bikini and figure. The figure girls in the untested shows, especially the higher level shows, they're much, much bigger than The bikini athletes, and, you know, you have to ask yourself the question how much of that came from diet and training and how much of it came from other enhancements. So as a natural female athlete who has never competed before, I just say go for it. Go and try to build as much muscle as you can, obviously focusing on the glutes and the hamstrings and the legs in general, but don't be afraid to train your upper body because I have seen bikini athletes not do very well because they didn't have good enough a good enough upper body they didn't have enough muscle mass on their shoulders and their back so go for
1: it it's like the fair a fair amount of the division that you compete in has to do with how you want to present yourself on stage so in other words i want to present myself on stage as a bodybuilder i'm going to continue to build muscle that's how i want to be on stage however that doesn't prohibit me from going on stage and being a physique competitor. I I've seen plenty of uh plenty of male competitors go out and they they clearly look like they've been bodybuilding and they go on and they just change their posing up and they're killing it in physique.
0: Yeah. In the natural shows, the line between divisions is a lot blurrier than in the unnatural shows. When it's I would not say.
1: pharmaceutically enhanced. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Then, I mean, I could probably step on stage and do bikini if I changed up my posing. I don't want to, but I think that I probably could. Um, It gets a little tougher as you get into like the bodybuilding. I would say bodybuilding both for men and women is is pretty different even in the natural organizations. Yeah.
1: The goal should always be to build muscle because that actually gives you more flexibility on what you want to do. It doesn't give you less flexibility. Anyhow, next part of the question, how much or how little cardio would you recommend for the off-season so that not to compromise muscle growth? I am an ectomorph who tolerates cardio well, but it affects my muscle growth. I'm okay with cutting it out. Okay.
0: If you're an ectomorph, I say cut it out. Honestly, if you are if you already have a hard time putting on muscle, I, the cardio is only gonna make that even harder for you. I'm just saying that for you, though, there are some people who, you know, store fat very easily. And in that case, doing some cardio could be helpful for them in the off season, Um, not overdoing it, of course, maybe just a couple sessions a week. But for you particularly, I would just say slowly cut it out over the next month and a half or so.
1: It's a tool. You use it as needed. It's not something that you should be doing Uh, if, if, especially like, like Danny said, especially if it's compromising muscle growth and and gains, I mean, I, I'm a a mesomorph and I didn't do an ounce of cardio in my off season. I'm also a
0: mesomorph and I did do cardio in my off season, just two very short 10 minute HIT sessions, but I did them every week all the way through my off season.
1: That's the thing. You know, you would be doing HIT if anything, because you would be burning Mm -hmm. a lot less muscle.
0: Totally. But yeah, for you, I would suggest cutting it out.
1: And then the last part, for someone not interested in doing a competition but still wanting to look better, do they need to follow the same bulking then cutting plan? How should they know when to bulk up and when to start the cutting phase?
0: I also want to say that Vegan Nail Tech asked this exact same question. Bulking and cutting for non-competitors, how do you know when to do it or if you need to do it? For the most part, I would say that, you know, somebody who's not looking to compete, you don't need to think of it as extreme, as bulking and cutting. You don't need to think about it that way at all. And I think that the just the train of thought of bulking and cutting puts you in a mindset of feast or famine. And I don't really like that. I don't even really like it for competitors, honestly. But for most people, I mean, the caloric changes that you're going to make from your maintenance level are going to be not more than maybe 200 calories in either direction. So no matter what, you're going to be staying in like a couple hundred calorie window, depending on your goals. Even if you're not a competitor, you can have goals to shed some fat and you can have goals to build some muscle to shed some fat. You're going to be in a small caloric deficit and to build some muscle, you're going to be in a small caloric surplus. How do you know when to switch? How do you know when you're quote unquote done? I think
1: that a good thing to to measure is how long you've been in the same place for what fine when you're at maintenance and you look at your physique do you know do you feel like you want to put on more muscle do you want to stay there or do you feel like you want to change your body composition and get leaner i mean that's that's what i would do basically is whenever you're kind of at a stalemate um figure out which direction you want to go and, uh, and go there slowly, and you'll get the best results.
0: Also, I mean, watch yourself in the mirror. Watch your measurements. Watch the scale, although please take that with a grain of salt because the scale is only one indicator of progress. But if you are losing weight or size faster than you would like to, it's time to put the brakes on the deficit a little bit and maybe bring your calories back up. And likewise, if your goal is to build muscle, but suddenly you're gaining a half a pound every single week, you're probably not gaining just muscle anymore. So you probably want to reel that in a little bit, unless you have a significant amount of weight to lose or gain to get up to a healthy body weight. um, You know, you're going to stay in a pretty small range. So it's really up to what you like, what you're feeling like, what you're looking like, um, and not getting too extreme with it.
1: Right. And the scale definitely does not define you. I mean, If you're making changes in your body weight slowly, it's not inconceivable that you could gain, say, anywhere from two to five or even more than five pounds of body weight, but become significantly leaner over time.
0: I'd also like to add that, especially for a non-competitor, sometimes you don't even have to change your calories. Sometimes it's just a matter of taking a look at where your macros are coming from And if you decide to track your food for a day and realizing that you're getting, I don't know, 350 grams of carbs and only 40 grams of protein in a day, you can probably make some pretty significant physique changes without changing your total number of calories, but rather bringing your protein up to where it should be and in turn lowering your carbohydrates or fats or whatever it is that you see that you're, you know, getting more of to stay within that caloric range. So that's an example of how somebody who is pretty new to sort of these types of goals can just change up their macronutrient profile and still make significant progress without adding or taking away calories.
1: For a while, and probably they'll have to wind up
0: adding calories eventually. I mean, for a noob, for a newbie, you can get away with doing that for well over a year, I think. Yeah, we're going to take one more question here. This came from Giacomo's Facebook page, and it's from Kanishka, That's an awesome name. If you could give one piece of advice to someone who is considering transitioning to a plant-based lifestyle diet, what would it be?
1: One. Just one piece of advice. I would say to to not be intimidated. You know, when you've been doing something your entire life, you're accustomed to it, when it's the cultural norm, it's what you feel is is your only option. It's all you know and it's all your family has shown you and it's all society has shown you. But veganism has has gone a lot more mainstream these days. There are so many more options than they used to be than there used to be out there. Food food producers are are quickly realizing that they can produce plant based uh unprocessed and processed foods a lot quicker and a lot easier than than animal-based foods. And so there there are so many more options popping up these days because it's more sustainable to produce these plant-based meats and cheeses and all the foods that that you're accustomed to as an omnivore but have them be 100% vegan. So don't don't be intimidated. There's there's lots of options out there. The internet's a thing and there's so many resources my, I guess my one takeaway would say uh, go into any vegan community, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, uh, a local meetup, whatever you have access to, and, and just ask around. Just talk to people. If there's one thing you know about vegans, uh, and you'll quickly realize it, it's that we all are very passionate about what we're doing, and we are more than willing to share, to overshare information about how to, how to help others transition. All you have to do is ask.
0: So I was also going to say my one piece of advice would be to reach out into the community for support, but Giacomo stole that. So I guess my other piece of not necessarily advice, but more motivation is what do you have to lose by trying it? Most of the time, people are really, really afraid to try and make the switch to a plant-based lifestyle. And I kind of understand the fear of the unknown, but really, what do you have to lose? Nothing. It's just going to be a month of trying something different, the same way a lot of people try to do other healthier things like eat a salad every day or go for a run every day. You're just going to eat plants every day instead. And most of the time, once people do it and, you know, make a commitment to stick to it for a month or something like that. I think a month is a good amount of time. I'm going to Eat a plant-based diet for one month by the end of that month most of the time people realize that they feel so much better that they actually want to continue sticking to this type of a lifestyle and even if at the end of that month the people the person realizes that you know they this is just impractical for their life um most of the time people are still going to understand the impact that it had on the way they felt and the way they looked and the energy that they had. And they are going to come out of the other side consuming far fewer animal products than they went into it. Which is still a win. Which is, you know, a small win, but it's a win. So these things don't necessarily happen overnight for a lot of people. And you have to be patient with the people around you. And a lot of times... A lot of times it seems like the people who are most resistant to the uh, people who are angry when they find out that you went vegan. Those are usually the people that end up coming around, you know, years down the road. So
1: happens every time.
0: Mm hmm. All right, everybody. And that wraps up our questions segment for this episode. Thank you so much for all these questions. We obviously did not get to all of them, but we have them all printed out and saved and we will be getting to them in future episodes. So if we didn't get to yours today, I apologize, but that doesn't mean we're not going to answer it.
1: on to our product review segment for today and it's going to be on the shirataki noodles uh, shirataki noodles they're pretty easy to find you can get them at just about any local grocer they're fairly inexpensive and they are filling really filling for two reasons one they're uh, voluminous so you get a lot on your plate Uh, for very few calories and two it's all fiber (laughs) so a bag of these things is six grams of pure fiber and that's that's a double whammy right there because I mean it's one thing to eat something to just fill up your belly but it's entirely something else when all you're eating is fiber that's going to leave you really really full and satiated so that is is why I love shirataki noodles. They're made from a, a Japanese root vegetable called konjac, or I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Whatever the case is, when they when they process these things and they they preserve them, um, they're it's it's in this water based solution. They, they don't have a good smell. They smell kind of fishy.
0: They smell horrible. <laughs> they smell like I don't know if anybody. Maybe I'm dating myself here. I don't know if anybody remembers um, the toy in the mid-90s called Gak from Nickelodeon. It was kind of like Silly Putty but green and it smelled. It had a smell to it. <laughs> that is exactly what these noodles smell like when you take them out of the bag.
1: Yeah so so the thing of it is you have to know how to prepare these things or you will be turned off of them so fast you'll wonder why the hell they were even in your house. Um, the first time we tried them I brought them over six months ago and and Daniel was like, "Hell no, we're never eating these things." And even after having that bad experience, after I learned how to cook them, and she's like, "You know, I just don't trust them, Giacomo." I said, "Look, just just try them, try them this way. You had them earlier earlier in the week. were, were they okay?
0: I mean they're not, I had tried them on their own first, and they're not great. They still have like a I don't know, like a bite to them. Mm. I don't know how else to explain it, but they have a bite to them, not like as far as being spicy, but like when you bite through them. They have a snap to them, um, which is a little bit different than, say, regular pasta. But they weren't bad, considering the macronutrients on them and how much you get. I can understand how if you dressed them up with, in a stir-fry with a bunch of vegetables or something like that, that that would be tolerable when you're hungry enough. So if you're out there and you're hungry, just give it a shot. But listen to Giacomo's directions on how to cook them, or you will hate us both.
1: Yeah, and the texture is unique, and but it's really not that bad. For what you're, especially for what you're getting. And this, you can completely remove the, the smell of them uh, by basically get them out of the package, uh, toss them in a colander or sieve or whatever, and drain and rinse them underwater for I'd say for about a minute or so. Put up a pot of water. Um, when it's boiling, toss them in and let them sit in the boiling water for five minutes. After you're done with that, drain them. Then take a pan and put it on medium high heat and dry uh, dry fry them. So no oil, no anything, just toss them into the pan. You wanna get all of the water out of the noodles. Do this for anywhere from five to 10 minutes. Once they start making a hissing or popping noise, that's when you know they're done. Uh, the downside if you wind up leaving them in the pan too long is that they're gonna come out like crispy and dry and just not, not really taste, It'd be impossible to chew. You'd be chewing them forever. So you really don't want to leave them in the pan for too long. Five to ten minutes is more than enough to get the smell out. Um, after that, you're pretty much done. Um, as far as improving on the, um, the taste of them, the best thing to do is, like anything else, that you're uh, marinating. You uh, toss your f- whatever it is that you're going to marinate them with, whether it's soy sauce or pasta sauce or whatever. And you uh, put them in a, put them in a container in the refrigerator from anywhere from twelve hours overnight, basically. Then the next day they'll they'll absorb the whatever it is that you mix them up with, reheat them in the oven, and you're
0: good to go. So the bottom line is these are a ton of work. but if you are in prep or you are in a strict diet or anything like that, you will find them to be worth the work. So if you're not on a diet or you're not cutting or you're not in a deficit or anything like that, you have absolutely no reason to purchase these ever as long as you live. But (laughs) if you are finding yourself hungry on whatever macros you're on right now, give them a shot because they they can really fill you up and sometimes that's all you need.
1: Oh yeah. All right, everybody, and that wraps up another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to stay in touch with us, if you have any questions or just want to reach out, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Vegan Proteins. Once again, my name is Giacomo.
0: And I'm Danny,
1: And we'll talk to you in two weeks.
0: Bye.